listening to the Retro Sermons Podcast. Find out more at NorthColumbusChristians.com slash Retro Sermons. It is delightful to me to have this fine audience here to see your interest manifested in this service and in this gospel scene. Even in spite of the difficulty that I've had with my throat this past week, I have enjoyed preaching to you. One reason I enjoy preaching at Spring Branch is because I think I know that the people of this congregation love the truth and want it preached. Because you listen to it so closely and so well. That's always inspiring and encouraging to a preacher. I'm grateful to you for the interest that you've shown by your attendance in these services by the good way that you have listened to the lessons that have been delivered. And I trust and hope and pray that it will be productive, that this meeting will be productive of a great deal of good for the cause of our Lord and the interest of the salvation of the souls of men and women. If we cannot persuade you to obey the gospel tonight, and we hope and pray that you will do so, We'd like for you to know that as members of this congregation, all of us are interested in helping you, in whatever way we can, to come to a fuller knowledge of the truth, to a better understanding of the will of the Lord. We'll be glad, the members of this congregation, the preachers, the elders of this church, to meet with you anytime, anywhere, that is convenient, and study with you further the Word of God. If your interest in the study of the Bible has been aroused, then you'd like to study it more. Know more about what it teaches. All you need to do is simply make that known. An arrangement will be made to satisfy that desire upon your part, give you an opportunity to discuss any Bible question and what the New Testament teaches about it that you'd like to study and to come better to an understanding of what the will of the Lord is. The trial of Christ has more in the New Testament from the viewpoint of time and space devoted to it as a record than any other event in the life of the Lord. And yet I have an idea that we've talked about it and studied about it less. There's more said about the trial of Christ than there is about the death of Jesus. More space given to the trial of our Lord than there is to his transfiguration, his resurrection, or any other single event in his life. And I have an idea that God gave it to us in that way and to that extent on purpose that he intended for us to study it, for us to come to an understanding that it was in every characteristic, in every single point, a hope, a miscarriage of justice, that it was the greatest single piece of injustice that the world probably has ever known. One reason for it being so is that the Jews in Jesus' generation were determined to put him to death. They didn't care how they do it, how they did it. They were not interested particularly in how they might be able to accomplish it, but they wanted it done. 
They despised him and hated him. Their hearts were full of enmity against him. And they wanted him out of the way. There were several reasons why this was true of that generation. Jesus became, the record says, a stone of stumbling and a block of offense. They stumbled at him and they stumbled at his words. For one reason, he condemned their hypocrisy. If you want an example of that, turn to Matthew 23 and read the severe denunciation of the leading religious sects of his day by name. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Over and over again he pointed out the various things about which they were so hypocritical as the leaders of the people. And this, of course, aroused their enmity. The Lord did not spare, he did not spare sinners, he did not spare insincerity, he did not spare hypocrisy. Openly he denounced it. That isn't ever pleasant. It always arouses a resentment upon the part of a great many people. In fact, truth will do that. There are a lot of people that do not want the truth, do not value it highly enough, that they willingly listen to it and accept it without resistance because it condemns them and what they are and what they do. Another reason why they resented the Lord and wanted him put out of the way, they wanted to get rid of him, was the fact that he would not conform to their traditions. The traditions of the fathers, the traditions of the Jewish elders, Jesus did not regard. He neither observed them nor did he teach his disciples to observe them. He taught that every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted shall be rooted up. He taught them that their traditions made void the commandments of God, that always between human tradition and divine truth there is a direct conflict. And the Son of God refused to bow to their traditions, and he refused to teach his disciples to observe them, and this they resisted because much of their religion was an inherited religion, a religion that they had inherited and had developed by the traditions of their fathers that had gone before them. But the main reason why they despised Jesus and wanted him put to death, their hearts were full of hatred and enmity and prejudice against him, was the fact that he refused to fit himself into their plan. He refused to accommodate himself to their demand. They had an idol in their heart. They wanted an earthly king. This is what led to their complete apostasy and to the final destruction of the Jewish nation. Back in the Old Testament, they rejected God as their king and demanded a king that they might be like the nations around them. God said to them, I gave you a king in my anger, I took him away in my wrath. But this was their concept of the coming Messiah. That he was coming to rule and reign over the Jewish nation. That they'd be the conquering people of the earth, the ruling nation of the world. That the Jewish nation would be restored with all of its power and pomp and glory and prosperity that characterized it back in the days of Saul and David and Solomon that their coming Messiah would be a king who would sit upon the literal throne of David in the literal city of Jerusalem, 
and rule over fleshly Israel, who themselves would be the rulers over all the Gentile nations of the earth. This was their idea, this was their hope, this was their idol. In every passage of scripture in the Old Testament, the prophesied concerning the coming king, they warped and molded and twisted it to fashion it about that idol and to make it support that idol. When Jesus came into the world, they tried upon more than one occasion to take him and force him to become the king of Israel. They tried to proclaim him as such. When he entered into Jerusalem, they would have proclaimed him as their king. Upon one occasion, he delivered himself out of their hands miraculously in order that he might prevent them from taking him by force and proclaiming him as their king. So they were determined to make the Lord, the Messiah, fit into their plans rather than fitting themselves into God's plans. And hence they rejected Jesus because he refused to become their king, an earthly king, the king of the Jews in a fleshly and a literal sense. When you read them and study the trial of the Lord Jesus Christ and their eight chapters given in the word of God that are largely devoted to it, if you were to turn to chapter 26 and 27 of the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14 and 15 of the Gospel of Mark, chapters 22 and 23 of the Gospel of Luke, and the chapters 18 and 19 of the Gospel of John, you'd find all eight of those chapters largely devoted to the record of the trial of our Lord. Even Mark's Gospel, the shortest one, 16 chapters in it, devoted almost two entire chapters to the discussion of the trial of Jesus. And surely there is enough import importance connected with it, attached to it, by the fact that God in his word has devoted so much time and attention to it, that it merits our very careful and our very prayerful study. I think in the first place, in order to understand the trial of our Lord, that we need to understand the governmental structure that existed in that day. The Jews were a conquered people. The Romans had conquered the Jews. They had established a military form of government over them. They had put Pilate as the procurator or the governor of Judea by the appointment and the authority of Caesar. They had stationed an army of occupation in the land of Judea in order to exact very severe and heavy taxes from the people, and in order to maintain the peace, so that it was the military form of government, the liberty of the Jews had been lost. They were no longer a nation that enjoyed privileges and liberty. Very much like the situation that existed in Japan after the last war, the Second World War, there was the situation in Judea, where a vestige of the old Jewish theocracy remained, a shell of the Jewish government remained, the Romans had kept it so. And in addition to Pilate, the Roman governor, they had Herod appointed as the Jewish king. He had no power. He was merely a figurehead. 
But at the same time, it gave to the Jews a sense of having a government when in reality they had none. They resented the Romans, of course, despised them and rejected them as Gentiles, unworthy of any consideration. They despised them because they were their captors and because they had to pay heavy taxes or duty to Caesar. They were denied their liberties, but at the same time they were willing to form a coalition with their enemies in order to get rid of Jesus. So in the days of Christ, while he lived upon the earth, there was a dual form of government in the land of Palestine. The Romans actually ruled it, they'd conquered it, the military form of government controlled it, but a vestige of the old Jewish theocracy remained, and they had some liberties, or rather some of their Jewish legal processes through which they yet went. For all of the power actually to the Jewish court had been denied. The death penalty was, under the law of Moses, of course, authorized. Death was, physical death, was the penalty prescribed by the law. You take a man in the act of adultery, stole him to death. You catch him picking up sticks on the Sabbath day in violation of the law, stole him to death. When it had been established by the mouth of two or three witnesses that the law of Moses had been set at naught, death was the penalty inflicted, and it was inflicted without mercy or without compassion. There was no leniency or no mercy granted under the law. So the death penalty, they had been accustomed to assessing and inflicting. But the Romans denied the Jewish court the right of putting anybody to death for anything. No matter what the crime, in order to get a man executed and capital punishment inflicted as punishment, it had to be taken to the, to the Roman authorities, to the Roman courts. So Jesus had to be tried both by the Jews and by the Romans. It was pretty much the process, or pretty much the custom of Pilate, to let the Jews settle their religious questions in their own court. He wasn't interested in their religious customs, or in their religious law. He told them, even in the trial of Christ, that this is a religious question, you take it aside and settle it among yourselves. I'm not concerned about it. I'm not an ecclesiastical ruler, I'm not a, an ecclesiastical judge. This is not a religious court. Settle your own religious problem. But they made him think as they changed their charge against Jesus to one of sedition or rebellion against Jesus. They made him think that Jesus actually was leading a Roman or a Jewish army in rebellion against the Romans in an effort to win their freedom from the Roman government. That he was therefore guilty of sedition, insurrection, or rebellion against Caesar. That he was worthy of death. To the trial of Christ, then, there were two separate stages. There was the Jewish phase of the trial and the Roman phase of it. But in each one of these phases, there were three separate phases. There was, for example, the appearance of Jesus before Annas, 
who that year was serving as, or should have been serving as high priest under the law. But he had sought to inflict the death penalty and had been removed by Roman authority. And in his stead, Caiaphas had been appointed or accepted by the Romans as the Jewish high priest. He wasn't in reality entitled to the position of the place, but the Romans recognized him as such. So Jesus was first heard by Anna, who should have been the high priest, then by Caiaphas, and then by the combined Jewish Sanhedrin council. And we'll discuss the structure of those Jewish authorities in just a little bit. These were the three stages of the law of the Jewish trial. A hearing before Annas, a hearing before Caiaphas, and the hearing before the combined Jewish Sanhedrin. Then they took him before Pilate, the Roman governor. Pilate listened to his case and sent him to Herod, the king of the Jews, by Roman appointment and by Roman agreement, permission. A puppet king. Herod tried him, or sought to try him. Jesus had no respect for him, showed him no consideration, because he knew that he was not the king and had no right to be king in any sense over God's people. So Herod sent him back to Pilate. Three stages to the Jewish trial and three stages to the Roman trial. Annas, Caiaphas, and the combined Sanhedrin, the Jewish trial. Pilate, Herod, and Pilate again, the three stages of the Roman trial. And it was necessary, of course, for him to be tried in the Roman court in order to be sentenced to death. That's the reason for the double trial that Jesus underwent. It's well to remember that in the Jewish system of justice, the lowest court was a three-judge court. They had no trial by jury system, such as we have today. But the lowest court that they had, in order that justice might be ensured, was not a single judge court, but a three-judge court. It would be comparable to perhaps our justice of the peace, or at least to our county court today. But there were three judges that sat in each case. And the Jewish law provided, and we'll refer to that in a moment, the Jewish law provided that no man should ever be tried by a single judge. We, of course, try to ensure justice by providing that a man can demand a jury trial and be tried before a jury of his peers today. But in those days, the Jews thought to ensure the rendering of justice by having at least three judges who had to concur, and that would ensure that no one of them would be prejudiced enough to have his way in to inflict injustice upon the man that was to be tried, or who was before the court. So you have a three-judge court, and then you have 21 judges in a second high court, of the Jews, called the Junior Sanhedrin. This was, of course, not divine arrangement. God did not ordain it. But it was a system that the Jews themselves had developed. And then you had 72 judges 
that constituted the supreme Sanhedrin or the senior Sanhedrin council of the Jews. Jesus was tried before a combined junior and senior Sanhedrin council. The third phase of his Jewish trial. Ninety-three judges. Twenty-one in the first court, seventy-two in the larger one, and the higher one, sat in judgment upon the Lord, the combined Sanhedrin council of the Jews. And this was the course of justice that was administered by the Jewish court. Of course, Pilate could have determined the case from the Roman point of view himself. Herod had actually no authority. The Pilate was trying to avoid making a decision. And he thought perhaps that Herod would decide the case for him, relieve him of his responsibility and not get him involved with this Jewish matter at all. Besides that, his wife had had a dream and had warned him not to have anything to do with the matter. He was trying to wash his hands and to avoid the responsibility for making the decision that actually fell upon him by sending Jesus to Herod. But Herod, of course, sent him back to Pilate. And this is the reason for the two appearances before Pilate and the reason why Pilate sent him to the court of Herod. It's well to remember that law has more than one source. It does in our country. There are three common sources of law today in the United States. One of them is statutory law. Another is the source of law that comes from the decision of the court. They determine what the law is in many instances. And then if there is no statute and if there is no court decision that determines a legal issue, sometimes it is decided upon the basis of long-established custom or practice. The rule in that case is, in the absence of a statute, or in the absence of a court decision, that the established practice in the community itself, or among the people itself, that has endured so long that the memory of man runneth not to the contrary, shall be given precedence in the judges or in the court's decisions. They'll decide it upon the basis of the long-established custom or practice if there is neither statute or judicial decision to, to be guided or to guide them in their decisions. This was true in the time of Jesus, as it is true now. Back then, there was, of course, statutory law in the form of the law of Moses. The Old Testament itself, all of the Old Testament is recognized as law. Not just the law that was given to Moses, to Israel on Mount Sinai, that is statutory all right. Moses wrote much more law in the book of Deuteronomy, made many more applications of the principles of God's law to many more situations. Just before Israel entered into the land of Canaan, the book of Deuteronomy is the re-giving of the law. That's what the word means. But in addition to their statutory law in the law of Moses, they had the prophets. 
And the prophets were recognized, of course, as having spoken with divine power under divine guidance. And not only that, but they had the poems, the psalms, that had been written as a means of their worship unto God by David and other writers, and these were inspired. And so in the New Testament you find the law and the prophets and the psalms all referred to as law under the Old Covenant. Jesus quoted from the psalms and said, Your law says. So that all of the Old Testament was recognized as inspired of God, as conveying to the Jews the will of God to govern and guide them and their relationships to each other as well as to God, and all of it was statutory law. But in addition to their statutory law, they had, of course, the decisions of their court, the traditions of the elders, and this constituted a great body of law unknown to the Old Testament, and in many instances, in fact in most instances, in conflict with it. Much of the Old Testament disputed and actually uh, comes in conflict with the traditions of the Jewish elders. But it was a great body of law that custom had been, uh, uh, or the custom had contributed to, that the decisions of the Jewish Sanhedrin had contributed to, that the Jewish elders themselves had compiled. Now, when they accused Jesus of violating the law, you find in every instance that he had not violated the law of God. What he had violated was their tradition. And they had, by the traditions of the elders, they had literally covered up the law of God until they were unable to distinguish between the two. One of the great burdens of the teaching of Jesus while he was here upon this earth was the burden of trying to separate in the minds of the people of God human tradition from divine law. This was one of their difficulties. And Jesus addressed himself to it upon many different occasions and trying to help them understand what the difference was. But where there was no tradition of the elders, there was at least custom to govern and guide. They recognized that as law. Today we have, of course, in our legal systems in this country, the same sources of laws we've suggested. There is statutory law, and some of the states depend almost entirely on statutory law. The Roman law was codified. It was a code of laws, a system of statutory law passed by lawmaking bodies, by men elected to councils and to congresses that had the authority to regulate the affairs of the people and therefore to pass and enact statutes. The state of Louisiana follows the Roman method perhaps more than any other state in the United States today. They undertake by statute to control nearly everything. On the other hand, the state of Tennessee is the opposite. The state of Tennessee is modeled not after the Roman form of government or government by statutory law, 
but the state of Tennessee more than any other state in the Union is modeled after the old English civil law, which depended not upon the enactment of statute, but depended rather upon the decisions of the court. The great body of law that had been compiled by the cases decided by the courts of that country. And this is still true. But even where there is no statute today, and where there is no decision of the court, long established custom and practice frequently influences and helps to decide what the decisions of the courts ought to be, and hence to make laws to govern and guide the people. With this much of an understanding of the origin of law and the judicial system that existed in the day of Christ, you can readily see that in our reference tonight to the illegalities connected with the trial of Christ, we're not talking about violations specifically of the law of Moses. We may have in mind the violation of Jewish decisions, the Supreme Court of the Jews, the Sanhedrin Council. Jewish traditions, the traditions of the elders, or we may have in mind going contrary to established Jewish customs, which bound them in many instances and which they recognized as law. And we want you to keep that in mind. But I'd like to suggest to you in the first place tonight that the arrest of Jesus was illegal. And we'll give you some reasons for the illegality of it. It was illegal in the first place because the Jewish law prohibited all proceedings at night. A man could not be arrested under the Jewish law. Most of it had to do with religion. And he could not be arrested upon a religious charge and deprived of his liberty or of the security of his home during the hours of the night. An arrest had to take place under Jewish law in the daytime. Their law, their law provided that a man could not be taken out of his home, separated from his family or his loved ones upon any kind of a religious charge during the hours of the night. But Jesus was arrest, arrested as best we can determine, contrary to that law, sometime after midnight, actually put to trial sometime between 2 and 3 o'clock in the morning, so that you can easily see that they disregarded this particular rule of their law in the case of Jesus Christ and his arrest. The arrest of Jesus was illegal for another reason. Their law provided that a man could not have to appear against him. It was not allowable that there be a witness appear against him either in a charge made by the court as a witness in the trial, or for the purpose of identifying him for the purpose of arrest, through some act or by some means, or in any other way, a man could not appear against him who was an accomplice in the wrongdoing, or who had actually been guilty with him in the perpetration of the crime of which he was accused. You know, today, if I'll digress long enough to tell you that I'm not altogether in favor of it, 
But today we have a system in which a man can turn state's evidence. He may be just as guilty as anybody in the whole set up. But the state says that we'll grant to you immunity and we'll not punish you for your part in the crime if you tell on the rest of them. And I say I don't like that particularly. The Jewish law directly and specifically prescribed that such a thing could not be done. Yet, when they arrested Jesus, he was identified by one of his disciples, Jesus, under the guise of friendship, planting a kiss of betrayal upon the cheek of Jesus. They'd tried to take Jesus before. They'd been unable to do so. He had miraculously delivered himself out of their hands upon more than one occasion. They were afraid that he would do so again. They wanted to have him definitely identified, so they arranged with Judas, one of the twelve disciples, one of the innermost circle of disciples of our Lord, to identify him by kissing him on the cheek. He professed act of friendship and love, and yet under the greatest of hypocrisy, thus to identify him for the purpose of arrest. And this was an open violation of their law. One who was himself a disciple of Jesus, who was a friend of the Lord, who was guilty of whatever the Lord was guilty of, he'd followed him for three and a half years, agreed for thirty pieces of silver, the price of an ox, with a professed kiss of friendship and affection, love and regard, to identify Jesus for the purpose of arrest. They violated their law on a third instance. They arrested Jesus without a warrant. Today, a man has to have a warrant to take away from you your liberty, and he must arrest you under proper authority of the court, or he cannot arrest at all. Of course, there's such, such a thing as a citizen's arrest, where you can be detained even by a citizen who's not an officer of the court where the crime has been committed, and where he has the right to detain you until an officer of the court can take you in charge. But they had no warrant for the arrest of the Lord, and yet their law required one. There was no court authorization for the arrest of Jesus. No warrant for his arrest, no charge made against him and sworn to before the court. No warrant issued by the court authorizing his arrest according to the provisions of their own law. So there was no proper court authority for the arrest of Christ. It was simply an arrangement of understanding that they had, and with the desire of the same Hebrew council that he might be arrested, that Jewish mob went out and deprived him of his liberty and took him back to the council for trial without any kind of court order or authority whatsoever. In the first place, the arrest of Jesus was illegal because 
It was the without a duty authorized officer of the court to perform it. Christ was not arrested by soldiers. Upon other occasions, they had sent soldiers, officers of the court, out to take him. They came to him, found him surrounded with a great throng of people. They were unable to press their way through the crowd, and immediately to arrest the Lord. They stood on the outskirts of the crowd and waited for him to finish so that they could take him. And while they waited, they listened, and while they listened, they were so impressed that they utterly forgot what they had come for and went back to the court. And when the demand was made, where is the prisoner? Their only explanation was, never did a man so speak. But Jesus was not arrested by an officer of the court, he was arrested by a mob. It's a case of mob violence. They took their sticks and their stones, they went out as a mob for the purpose of taking him in charge and bringing him back and delivering him to the Jewish court for trial. So rather than an orderly procedure according to their own law, the arrest of Christ was illegal and unlawful from every point of view. And it became a good example of what would commonly be called today as mob violence. But we pass on to another point, and that is that the indictment brought against the Lord, when they indicted him on a specific charge, it was illegal, and it was illegal for various reasons. It was illegal in the first place because the examining trial before the indictment was an illegal thing. Before they had indicted him, they took him before Annas, and there was a private hearing, contrary to Jewish law. The Jewish law said no hearing can be held before less than three judges. But five of the six stages in the trial of Christ were private hearings before one judge court in violation of every law that they recognized in that direction. Anna heard him privately. Caiaphas examined him privately. Pilate examined him privately. Herod examined him privately, and Pilate again examined him privately. Five of the six phases of his trial. And in the initial stages of it, before he was brought to the Sanhedrin, the hearing before both Annas and Caiaphas were indeed violations of their law. Then the examining trial was not only an illegal thing, but there's another reason why the indictment of the Lord is illegal, and that is the Sanhedrin Council originated the charge. And the Sanhedrin Council, under Jewish law, was prohibited from making or originating any kind of a charge against anybody. The Sanhedrin Council of the Court of the Jews, the High Court of the Jews, existed only for the purpose of investigating charges. And yet the very charges that were made against Jesus, both in the Jewish trial and in the Roman trial, were charges that originated with the judges of the Sanhedrin court of the Jews. They charged him with sedition under the Jewish law, and with promising and prophesying the destruction of the seat of the Jewish government. They said that when Jesus taught all of these things, 
would be destroyed. And when he said, if you destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up again, that he was actually seeking the destruction of the Jewish nation, that he was seeking to overthrow the Jewish court and its authority, that he was therefore against Jewish government and guilty of sedition or rebellion against Jewish authority. But they charged him also with blasphemy. You know, the Lord made a lot of peculiar claims. He said he was the Christ, the Messiah. He claimed to be God. They said he's guilty of blasphemy. They didn't believe him. More than that, when they brought him before Pilate, they accused him of trying to raise an army and lead a rebellion against Caesar. This was what they wanted him to do. It was what they had tried to get him to do. But they themselves, being guilty of it, they laid it upon the Lord and said he claims to be the king of the Jews. He's in rebellion against Caesar. He's guilty of sedition. And therefore is worthy of death. So they claimed that he was in rebellion against the Roman authority and ought to be put to death. And that, of course, was a switching of charges. That made it duplicitous, and it was, of course, illegal because it was duplicitous. The law says that you cannot charge a man with two crimes in the same indictment. You cannot even charge him with two instances of the commission of the same crime in the same indictment or in the same count. There has to be, for each time that even the same crime is committed, there has to be a separate indictment for each offense. And if he is charged with two different crimes in the same indictment, a proper motion to cross it before the court will always dispose of the case. It will always be acceded to by the court if the court respects the law. If they charge Jesus with various instances of the same crime, and even with two different crimes, blasphemy and sedition, they lumped it all together. They were not specific as the law required them to be. And when they took him into the Roman court, they dropped the first charge of blasphemy and piety because it was a religious charge and Pilate would not hear it. And so they tried him upon a civil charge that he was guilty of leading a rebellion against Caesar. But the indictment against the Lord was illegal because it was brought primarily by one of his judges, Caiaphas or Caiaphas, who was himself a judge of the court, made the indictment. It is well remembered that in no man's land and under no law anywhere on earth can a man file a complaint against the prisoner at the bar and at the same time sitting judgment at the trial of his case. That, of course, would be ranking just. But old Caiaphas not only made the charge, but he was the prosecuting witness and the judge as well at the trial of Jesus. He occupied all three instances. 
But not only was the indictment against Jesus illegal, and his arrest illegal, but his trial was illegal for various reasons. In the first place, his trial took place at night. The Jewish law provided that no prisoner could have any kind of a charge or indictment brought against him, be arrested, and put on trial in a 24-hour period. At least 24 hours, however negligible the charge might be, however trivial it might seem, there had to be a period of time consisting of at least 24 hours before a hearing could be held. They didn't respect their own law in that case. Jesus was arrested sometime after midnight. His trial started somewhere around 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, probably. It continued right on into the next day, and the Lord was arrested and indicted and tried and convicted and put to death within a 24-hour period in open, flagrant, notorious disregard of everything that the Jewish law required of them. In the next place, I'd like for the offering of the morning sacrifice in harmony with the Jewish law. But it was illegal in another regard. It was illegal because it was carried out, the trial was actually conducted on the day preceding the Sabbath day of the Passover week. And this was a violation of the law. Their proceedings were conducted on a day preceding the Jewish Sabbath. Also, on the first day of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, and on the eve of the Passover, they actually violated their law that they observed professedly with the greatest and strictest manner by putting Jesus to trial on the day before the Jewish Sabbath in utter disregard of their own legal provisions. The trial of Jesus was illegal for another reason. He was convicted by what would amount to a unanimous verdict. Now, you know, in most of our states, it's been changed in some of them, but in the most of our states, it's still necessary to have a unanimous verdict with the jury before a man can be convicted. If the jury does not unanimously agree on the verdict, it's a mistrial. In the Jewish law, they had a peculiar provision that when a man was tried before the Jewish Sanhedrin Council, if there was a unanimous verdict in either one of them, the senior or the junior, 71 in, or 72 in one, 21 in the other, and if a man's verdict was unanimous and the verdict was guilty, the law said that because there was evidently, by a unanimous verdict of that many men, a miscarriage of justice that the prisoner would be allowed to go free. Yet in the, in the trial of Christ, there was not a dissenting vote. Some of them did not participate. Some of them did not cast their vote. Some of them kept their silence. But 
all of the votes cast unanimously pronounced the Lord guilty and worthy of death. And by all of the provisions under their law, he should have been allowed to go free. But they forgot about that. They just disregarded it to accomplish their purpose. In the next place, the trial of the Lord was illegal because they did not consider the merits of his defense. In fact, they offered him no opportunity to make a defense. This is one of the singular things about the trial of our Lord. A man ordinarily is given time to prepare a defense, to summons his witnesses, and given ample time in court to present whatever defense the fact will allow. This is one of the theories of the law. I hear people say to me every once in a while, well, here's uh, so-and-so a lawyer, and he took so-and-so into court when he knew that he was guilty of the crime, and he pled him not guilty. Well, he had to, or there wouldn't have been any trial. And the law provides that every man, no matter what kind of a crime he may have committed, that every man is entitled to his day in court and to the best representation that the facts and the truth and the law will allow. There may be some mitigating circumstances that would lessen the penalty and the punishment. And a man has a right for those mitigating circumstances to be taken into consideration. So, a plea of guilty does not mean that it is denied altogether from a legal point of view that a man actually did the crime of which he's charged. That isn't the idea. But it is made in order to give him a defense. If he isn't pled not, rather not guilty, if he isn't pled not guilty, there'd be no defense. There'd be no chance to offer any defense of any sort or kind of mitigating circumstances. And so that's the theory of our law. But in the day of the Lord, the sentence of the Lord was that he was worthy of death, guilty and worthy of death, and it was upon an uncorroborated confession. Today, we do not accept uncorroborated confessions. Every once in a while, a heinous crime is committed, and somebody who's mentally deranged, or who for some other reason maybe wants to die, or wants to accomplish some other purpose, will confess to a crime that he had nothing whatever to do with. If you could convict the man upon an uncorroborated confession, it would be a good way for a lot of people who are mentally deranged to commit suicide. So the law won't allow that. Their law didn't allow it. But they didn't give Jesus a chance to offer any defense at all. It wasn't because there were not men there who would have testified in his behalf. John was present. He stayed with him to the end. He would have made a good witness in the defense of Jesus. Certainly so. There were others present also, even in the very trial of our Lord, who would gladly have testified for it and in his defense, but they had no opportunity. Peter, of course, 
would not have been the kind of a witness upon that occasion that I would have called had I been conducting any defense for the Lord. He had shown himself entirely too weak. He was ready to die for Christ, but he wasn't ready to put his confidence and his faith in the Lord. He drew his sword to resist the mob that would arrest him. Jesus rebuked him for it. Peter, rather pouting in his disposition, and at that time a very weak individual in many regards, followed the Lord afar off to the house of the high priest. He stopped in the outer court. He didn't go on into the Sanhedrin court or council, into the court of Antonio, where, where he was tried. He didn't go on into the house of the high priest. He stopped at the house, at the outer, in the outer court of the high priest's house. Warmed at the devil's fire with the enemies of Jesus. And even when a maiden accused him, that you're one of his disciples, I've seen you in his presence. Peter denied the Lord and cursed and swore and declared that he didn't even know Jesus. So he wouldn't have made a very good witness at that juncture. Later on, he was strengthened. He became much stronger. And his life is the story of how Christian life ought to evolve, how it ought to grow, and strength ought to come with increasing degrees in succeeding years until our faith gets stronger and stronger and our hope brighter and brighter as the end of our journey approaches. That was the case with Peter, but at the time of the trial of Jesus, he would have made a poor witness. But they offered the Lord no chance for any defense whatsoever. No defense witnesses were called. They were not interested in the defense. Finally, the trial of Jesus was illegal because he was convicted upon his own testimony. And you remember the circumstances. They demanded that he testify at his own trial. Justice has always provided due to the conflict in human emotions, that no man who is on trial for any kind of a crime or an offense can be made by the law to testify at his own trial. He can do so if he wishes, but he cannot be forced to testify at his own trial. There's a reason for that. You put me on trial for committing a murder, and I know that if I tell the truth, that I'll be convicted of the crime and maybe put to death or punished in a very severe manner. I take the witness stand and under oath swear that I'll tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. That becomes an obligation to tell the truth. But by telling the truth, I convict myself. Human emotions are not able to withstand that sort of a trial. And the law recognizes. So you'd be inviting a man and almost coercing a man to save his own neck to commit perjury in the defense of himself. That's the strongest instinct God ever endowed any living creature with, is self-preservation. So our, our laws say, and the laws of all the nations that are civilized say, that a man cannot by his own testimony 
being made to convict himself of any kind of crime. But they didn't pay any attention to that when they tried Jesus. When Pilate saw that the Jewish trial was going badly, he saw that something had to be done with all of the perjury that had been done and the lies that had been told and the manufactured testimony that had been given. There was no evidence sufficient to convict Jesus of blasphemy or anything else. So Pilate in his desperation, or rather Caiaphas, in his desperation demanded, Art thou then the Christ? Jesus could have held his peace. He did so before Herod. In utter contempt for the court of Herod, he refused to open his mouth. To pay Herod that much respect, he could have kept his peace and been within his rights legally when Caiaphas demanded of him, Art thou then the Christ? But he didn't. Rather, he said, This thou sayest, because I am. He confessed that he was the Christ. The language in the original there justifies this sort of construction. That if I were not the Christ, you wouldn't have to ask me, you'd be able to prove it. But since you have had to ask me that I, if I am the Christ, that evidence is the fact that I am. The fact you've had to ask me proves that I am the Christ. The same thing happened in the Roman trial. Pilate said to him, Art thou then a king? Jesus said to him, This thou sayest. You've asked me because I am the king. You've been forced to ask me. They cannot prove that I am not the king. You've called upon me to testify, even in violation of the law, Jesus could have added. And this within itself proves that I am the king. You'd be able to establish that I am not, if I were not. So the Lord acknowledged it. And it was by his own confession that they sentenced him to die. That's what we mean when sometimes we say that Jesus confessed that he was the Christ and died for that confession. You and I make it in order that we might live spiritually. The Son of God died upon his own testimony. He died because he came into the world to die. He died because it was God's plan for him to die. He died in order to make possible the remission of your sins, the salvation of your soul, to purchase the church and to bring it into existence, to make and to bring life and immortality to life through the gospel. He came to die. His enemies did not triumph over him. God simply used them unwittingly. They didn't know it. But God was using them and their hatred and their envy and their prejudice to accomplish his purpose in the death of Jesus Christ our Lord. But I want for just a few moments to see some of the spiritual applications. We've seen the legal aspects of it, and they form a very interesting and profitable study. But what about the spiritual implications of it? In the first place, I'd like to suggest to you the utter incongruity 
of a situation where the Son of God, the righteous judge of the earth, was put on trial, examined, and tried by men. The prophets had prophesied it, that he would be tried and rejected of men. But who are men to try the Son of God? What man is able to sit in judgment upon Jesus Christ? who was perfectly and altogether holy and righteous, who never did any wrong or committed a sin in his entire life, who was God in human form. How can men sit in judgment upon Jesus? The answer is that in reality they can't, and yet they do. And it's necessary for us in our own minds whether in faith, in surrender, in trust, or in complete unbelief and rebellion against the Lord. It is necessary for us, and it's necessary for you, and for every other responsible individual, to render a verdict concerning Jesus. You've got to decide the case for yourself. Somebody else cannot decide it for you. You either decide that he's worthy of your belief and your trust, that he's worthy of your obedience, that he's worthy of your service and your sacrifice and your worship and your adoration, or you decide that he isn't. And you have to make that decision for yourself. In reality, we are judging Christ by our conduct and by whether or not we're seeking to become what the Lord wants us to be, and doing His will, in order that we might. In a very real sense, you're sitting in judgment upon Christ tonight. There are people in this audience, both young and old, who are in the very process, as we study this lesson, of making up your mind whether or not you do what the Lord commands you to do, or rebel against what He requires at your hands. Whether or not by your decision you'll say to the world that I believe him to be worthy of all my faith, my trust, my love, my obedience, my service, my sacrifice, and I'll say it to the world by accepting him and seeking to serve him. Or you make up your mind, you'll decide, and you'll decide before this service is over if you're not a Christian. You'll decide that I do not believe him to be worthy of my faith. I'm not going to put my trust in him. I will not do his will. I will not become what he wants me to be. And you can't leave this service without making one of the two decisions. There isn't any way for you to avoid it. You may say sometime, I will be a Christian. But for now... You've already decided that you won't when you say that. You may say sometime, I will do his will. But for now, you have already decided that at this moment, I will not do his will when you reach that decision. There isn't any way to avoid deciding what we'll do with Jesus. Pilate had that problem. What shall I do then with this Jesus who is called the Christ? What am I going to do with him? Well, do something with him, you must. Pilate had two. 
spite of his wife's warning, he had to make a decision. In spite of washing his hands, trying in that gesture to free himself of all responsibility, yet he had to decide the case. He had to reach a decision. And I say to every unsaved individual in this audience tonight, to every person who isn't a member of the church, of Jesus Christ our Lord, who isn't a child in God's family, I say to you that you'll make a decision before this service is over, and there isn't any way for you to avoid it. What can you base it on? What you need to remember as you decide the case is that according to your decision, the Lord will make his. As we treat him and as we judge him, he will judge us. Paul said there's coming a time in which we all shall appear before the judgment seat of Christ to render an account of the things done in the body, whether they be good or bad. The Lord's going to decide my case for all eternity according to what I myself do. I, in reality, am writing my own verdict, completely responsible for it. Paul said that in the day of the wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God, that he render unto every man according to his works. God will render unto all men according to their works. Your works will determine your eternal destiny. Whether or not they are the works of faith in obedience to the will of the Lord, and you've done the will of the Lord, will determine the destiny of your soul after a while. Whether you go to heaven or hell will be determined upon the basis, not of just what you believe, Though that's essential, but upon the basis of what you do because you believe in Jesus Christ. John said, I saw a great white throne, and him that sat upon it, before whose face the heavens and the earth fled away, and there was found no place for them. And he said, I saw the sea, or the dead, both the great and the small, stand up before that throne. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and the dead stood up before the throne, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, and the dead were judged out of the things that were written in the books. Listen to it. Every man according to his works. So you're deciding what the Lord's judgment of you is going to be after a while. You are making that decision yourself. The Lord in all righteousness will deal with you. In all justice will deal with you. But the decision is your responsibility and the verdict is determined by you. What are you going to do with Jesus? What are you going to do about him? Accept him or reject him? Be just a Christian or something else? Or not be anything at all religiously? Obey him or rebel against him? Serve him or do your own will and further your own interest. What is your decision concerning Christ? Before you make it, before we call upon you to make it, I want briefly just to offer a little testimony. Let's imagine, if we can, a courtroom scene. Most of you have been to court upon some occasion. 
Maybe you've even witnessed a criminal trial. Suppose we have here the judge's bench and over on that side the witness stand. And we want to put some witnesses on the stand and examine them just a little bit to see what their testimony about Jesus is. And to see if we can what our verdict concerning the Lord ought to be. If I were to call a line of witnesses for the Lord, I think I'd hit the list with Nicodemus. He was a member of the Sanhedrin Council, a ruler of the Jews, one of the Jewish judges. In all probability, he was present when Jesus was tried. There was such excitement in Jerusalem. It was such a momentous occasion. The presumption would be in favor of the fact that all of the Jewish judges were there. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus and even others. And among the Jewish judges, the record says in John 12 and 42, there were many who believed in Christ, convinced concerning his identity, as strong an expression on faith in Christ as you can read in your Bible. John 12 and 42. They believed faith, Christ. Literally, we ordinarily would read it into Christ. Their convictions were fully and completely made up and persuaded. They believed his identity. But they would not confess him because they loved the praise of men more than they did the glory of God. They were believers, but they were law believers. A lot of people don't think that there is such a thing. The Bible talks about it. Lost believers. They were lost for three reasons, in spite of the fact that they believed in Christ. They would not. That's rebellion, isn't it? They did not confess him. That's denying They loved the praise of men more than they did the glory of God. You can't be saved and love the world more than you love God. So for three reasons those men were lost, yet they were convinced concerning Jesus. One of them, a man by the name of Nicodemus, came to him by night. Likely, if you'd have speculated all about it, it would be presumed that he came because he didn't want to incur the disfavor of his fellow judges. He didn't want them to know that he was coming for an interview with Jesus. So he came by night. He talked to Jesus about the kingdom of God. I'd like to talk to Nicodemus about the Lord, wouldn't you? I'd raise first of all the question of his identity. He'd tell us that his name is Nicodemus. What position do you hold, Nicodemus, among the Jews? Well, I'm a member of the Sanhedrin Council, the senior Sanhedrin Council. That means you're one of the Jewish judges, one of the judges of the high court of the Jews. That's right. That's right. Well, did you know during your life a man by the name of Jesus of Nazareth? Now we have his deposition. It's been taken by the Holy Spirit and recorded in the New Testament. We still have access to his testimony. His answer would be, yes, I knew him. Did you know him personally? Yes. Did you ever upon any occasion personally visit or have a conversation with him? And his answer would be yes. 
What did you talk about? We talked about the kingdom of God and the new birth. Well, upon that occasion, Nicodemus, did you in any way commit yourself to Jesus? Or have you made any commitment concerning the Lord? And what is your judgment about him? His answer would be, I know that he came from God. For no man could do the things that he did, except God be with him. That's the testimony of this Jewish judge. But let's get others. Let's go to the officers of the Jewish court who were set out to arrest him. And let's call them to the witness stand. And we identify them as employed by the court of the Jews to carry out their bidding and to enforce their laws to the extent that the Romans would let them. We raise with them the question, did you ever have any instruction from the Jewish court? Concerning a man called Jesus of Nazareth, the answer was yes. What was your charge by the court or your instruction concerning him? We were supposed to apprehend him. You were sent out by the court then to arrest Jesus. The answer would be yes. Did you find him? Yes. Under what circumstances? A great throng was gathered about him. The people were so thick that we could not penetrate them and immediately carry out our purpose. We could not press our way through the throng of people that were standing about listening to it. Well, did you eventually wait until the crowd had dispersed and then arrest him? No. What did you do? We went back without him. How did you happen to do that? Their answer would be, we utterly forgot what we came to do. What caused you to forget it? You had a charge with the court. You found the man that you were seeking. You could have arrested him, at least by waiting until the crowd dispersed. Why didn't you carry it out? Why did you forget it? Their answer would be, and this is the only explanation they offered, never did a man so speak. Jesus impressed them so by what he said, by what they heard, that they utterly forgot the mission on which they had been sent. I think I'd like to call another witness to the stand. And this time I'd like to call Pilate, the Roman governor. We'd identify him, of course, as a man of great prominence, appointed by Caesar and under Caesar's authority, acting as governor of Judea. It was his job, and he'd tell us so, to keep the peace and to collect the taxes. Primarily, these were his obligations and responsibilities. So we'd raise with him the question, Pilate, while you sat as judge over Israel uh, under the appointment and authority of Caesar, as the governor of Judea, was a man brought before you, charged by the Jews, by the name of Jesus of Nazareth? His answer would be in the affirmative, yes. Did you examine such a man? Well, I sought first to avoid it. It seemed to me to be a religious question, he'd tell us. And I told the Jews to take him off to the side and settle their own religious dispute. 
I didn't want to have any part in it. How did you finally dispose of him? I seen him to Herod, the king of the Jews. Did Herod decide the case for you? No. He sent him back. Did you finally render a decision concerning him? Did you examine the evidence? Did you hear the testimony they had to present? And did you render a decision or a verdict? His answer would be yes. What was it, Pilate? After you heard what they had to say about Jesus, what did you decide? Actually, what was your decision in this case? His answer would be, I find no wrong in him. I find nothing, you've established nothing against him. Not one thing on earth have you proven that he has done. That is unworthy, that is illegal, that is in any sense a crime. I find no fault in it. He wouldn't be a witness. Jesus, he was not an interest, interested witness or a witness of interest. Rather, he was an unbeliever, but he examined the evidence, historical evidence, concerning the life of Jesus of Nazareth and had some things in his history of the Jews to say about him. Do you know one of the things he said? Well, if we qualify him as an expert witness, a historian, and he was and could be so qualified, then we'd raise with him the question, do you find evidence that a man named Jesus of Nazareth ever actually lived in Judea? The answer would be, well, of course. That couldn't be denied. Was there anything unusual about him? Was he outstanding in any sense? Josephus Josephus as well qualified as an expert in such matters as perhaps anybody could be. And as we bring him and qualify him to offer expert testimony concerning Jesus, his testimony is, if I were to select the six outstanding characters of all human history that have influenced the course of human history more than all others, I would be forced to head that list with Jesus of Nazareth. But I wouldn't want to close this examination of the testimony and the evidence concerning the Lord without bringing Judas to the stand. I'd like to know what caused Jesus, Judas to do what he did, wouldn't you? Why did Jesus, Judas treat the Lord like he did? He was with him three and a half years. As we identify him, we find out that he was one of the original twelve, chosen by Jesus. Jesus put his confidence in him, trusted him. Yet he proved himself utterly unworthy of that trust. After three and a half years of traveling constantly in the company of our Lord, going everywhere he went, seeing everything that he did, hearing all that he taught, noting the perfection of his life, the power of God in the miracles that he performed, and all of the other evidence of his divinity. 
Judas, you went in to the Sanhedrin council and bargained with them to betray Jesus into their hands, didn't you? And his answer would be yes. What kind of an agreement did you make? I agreed when the mob came to arrest him that I would identify him positively for the purpose of being arrested by putting a kiss or placing a kiss upon his cheek. That would be the mark of identification, so that they'd know who to arrest, for certain. What was the consideration, Judas, that they paid you for? And sadly, I have an idea he'd say 30 pieces of silver. The Old Testament says, for the price of an ox. And what I'd like to ask Judas would be this. Is that the value after three and a half years that you placed upon the Son of God? Do you want that to stand? Are you willing to let that stand as a representation of your real, personal, individual appraisal of Christ and your attitude toward him? And I can almost hear him cry out in remonstrance. Have you not heard? Do you not know that I took it back and flung it at their feet when I realized what I had done and that I cried out even to those with whom I made the bargain I have betrayed innocent blood well why did you do it Judas I love money I was guilty of avarice greed for money I was a thief I took money out of the money bag and used it for my own purpose. I love money too much. Well, do you mean you love money enough that you'd accept thirty paltry pieces of silver and agree to betray Jesus Christ that he might be put to death? And again you'd cry out in remonstrance and he'd say, No, I never thought it would come to that. I had no idea. He had delivered himself from them before. I thought he'd do so again. I had no idea it would result in his death. And yet it did. It did. And Judas was guilty of betrayal. Even as the Son of God said he would be, and as the New Testament records that he was. What do you think of Jesus, who is called the Christ? What's your own personal verdict concerning him? Do you think that he's from God? Do you believe that he is the mystery of godliness manifested in the flesh? Do you believe that God approved his life by mighty miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the presence of men, as they all knew? Do you believe that he died upon the cross, and that the power of his blood is able to cleanse your soul from the guilt of sin? Do you believe that he was raised from the dead, and that is a living Christ? Again, one of these days, unto all them that have loved him, to receive them unto himself, together together the redeemed of all ages, to escort them through the gate that stands ajar into the eternal city of God, 
to commend them there unto the Father and to dwell with them forever in God's presence. Do you believe in the Christ of the Bible? If so, what have you done about it? And what will you do about it? What kind of a verdict will you announce to the world tonight? Will you say, I believe him worthy, I'll obey him, I'll put my trust in him, I'll serve him, I'll live for him, I will seek to accomplish his purposes in my life, that I may be saved by him in eternity after a while. Friend, you can be a Christian tonight if you render that kind of a verdict. That's all that'll make one out of them. But that's exactly what that'll make you. It won't make you anything if you will follow it. But a Christian, just a Christian, only that and nothing else. That's all you ought to want to be. That's all God ever told anybody to be coming. That's all the Bible ever authorized. That's all people who obeyed the gospel ever were. Just Christians, only Christians, and nothing else. We invite and pray and plead in this last service of this gospel meeting that you come tonight and become one. May God help you to do it while we stand and sit.